Dry Malt. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and for once I'm not joined by my good friend, colleague and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. I'm instead introducing a very special edition of Radio Brews News that features a discussion panel that took place back in May during Good Beer Week called Brewers and Growers. And it is a special thanks to Cry Malt, especially this week, um, because it was recorded in the Cry Malt Corporate Lounge at Beer Deluxe. Um, it was a discussion panel that was chaired by Catherine McLean from the CBIA, and it was an awesome panel featuring Rapunyup Farmer and Grain Producers Australia Chairman Andrew Wiedemann, Owen Johnston from Hot Products Australia, and a brewing panel that included Grant Warren from Modus Operandi, Andrew Ong from Two Brothers, Sean Simons from White Lakes Brewery, and Brad Rogers from Stone and Wood. It's a feisty discussion uh, with plenty of forthright opinions, as you would hope from anything that Australian Brews News does. Um, and it was especially forthright from the questions from the floor. Australian Brews News was honoured to be allowed to present this discussion, and uh, we're pleased to bring it to you now. So without any other great introduction, I'd like to hand over to Catherine McLean, who will introduce the panel. Welcome. Uh, to this session of Growers and Brewers. I'm Catherine McLean and I work with the CBIA. Um, so thanks for coming. So Cryer Malt began this conversation last year and uh, this is an extension of the conversation because apparently uh, the conversation between Growers and Brewers last year was a very interesting one that needed to be deepened. So here we are. Um, now, um, so we're bringing together Growers and Brewers. Um, and essentially this conversation is about um, building a shared understanding of the future challenges and uh, opportunities uh, for the beer industry supply chain. And, uh, and basically nothing's going to change overnight, but this is, this is what's important to ensure security of supply uh, into the future. Uh, right, so I'm no expert in this area, um, but I am joined by an illustrious panel of experts in this area. Uh, and I'd like to introduce them. So uh, down the far end here, we've got Andrew Wiedemann. So Andrew is a third generation farmer um, from Yarranup, is that right? Rapanya. Rapanya. Yeah, town by the water, Aboriginal. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of Western Australian. Um, Rapanya uh, in Victoria, the Wimmera region, and uh, it's known for the home of the first Bendigo Community Bank, which you were a core part of establishing. Uh, and uh, his farms in partnership with his wife Julie, brother Rodney and wife Andrea, cropping uh, 3,500 hectares of wheat, barley, canola and pulses, as well as managing a white Suffolk stud. Uh, the Wiedemann family have been acknowledged as innovators and early adopters of new technology by the industry, uh, winning various awards. And they continue to invest and support on farm research trials across their farm. The Wiedemanns have built up significant uh, have built up a significant farm storage, allowing them to trade internationally into markets around the world. And recently, Andrew has become the face of Crown Lager in an, an advertisement profiling the raw materials used in the production. Uh, Andrew has held senior positions in the Victorian Farmers Federation and is the deputy chair. No, and was the deputy chair of the Birchip Cropping Group. Currently, he serves on federal and state committees, developing strategy, strategies around markets and research. And he is a current national chairman for the Growers Producers Australia, the peak body for grains in Australia. So I think we're pretty lucky to have him here. 
next along, we've got Grant Warren uh, from Modus Operandi in the Northern Beaches. Andrew Ong from Two Brothers Brewery uh, in Victoria. Sean Simons from White Lakes Brewing in WA. Tim... Oh... OJ, <laughs> Owen Johnson, um, <laughs> I'll get that right, uh, from Hot Products Australia. And uh, last but definitely not least, Brad Rogers from Stonerwood. Okay, so this is a conversation. It's a conversation uh, for all of us in the room uh, looking at some of the challenges that are going to face with the growth of the industry. So the premise, the start off of the conversation essentially is that craft beer is growing and Australian craft beer is growing. Uh, in the US, the craft beer market is uh, projected to grow by 20% in the year 2020. So that's only four years away. Um, now, if Australia's growth reflects the US, um, the, the main conversation piece that we want to have today is how can the raw materials serve, like what impact does that have on, on raw material um, products into breweries? Uh, and uh, what are the challenges and opportunities of this growth? Now, I'm going to hand this straight over to Brad Rogers to start the conversation. <laughs> so, yes, Brad, your input. Well, you're right, 100%. We've just come back from the US and, yeah, the US is not stopping and... You know, us at Stone and Wood, you know, we're trying to keep up. We still can't keep up. And, you know, as we all know, it's not just about stainless steel and people drinking the beer. It's about being able to keep up with all of our raw materials, you know, whether it's hops, whether it's grain, you know, right across the gamut. And, you know, pretty important, certainly for us, you know, as we continue to grow, you know, we've got great relationships with our suppliers right down to the growers, you know, whether it be the, uh, you know, the, the barley being grown, whether it being the wheat or whether it being hops, you know, grown in this country or hops grown in the U.S., you know, so for us, it's very much about the relationship that we have. And we treat suppliers as partners, you know. We don't treat them, you know, we don't get the whips out. We really want to make sure that suppliers are a very important part of our business. And, you know, we actually have supplier parties. We actually get them all up to the brewery. It's pretty easy to get people up to Byron. But we actually, uh, you know, really try and look after the suppliers. I don't... I think the days are gone when I was working at the Empire when you really treated suppliers like shit, basically. And for us, you know, it's very important to treat them really, really well and, you know, look after them because at the end of the day the effort that you actually put into the supplies and get the supplies to understand where you're at uh, and what your needs and what your complications are you know the, the better the relationship will be and the better that the supply back to you will be and for us you know that's uh, that's paramount at the end of the day you can't make great beer and get great beer out into the market without having great grain great hops great water great yeast you name it uh, you know across those for raw materials is pretty important for us. Uh, like Kath like says, you know, this is very much an open conversation. For us, it's very much uh, creating those relationships, uh, maintaining those relationships and really working on those relationships and getting not just the guys to understand where we're at. We've got to understand, you know, some of the limitations of supply, you know, that we're seeing and, you know, just work together and making sure that we've got that open communication to be able to have those conversations. and. You know, sometimes those conversations are pretty hard, but you've got to be able to have the relationship to have those conversations. Cool. I'd be interested in digging deeper in a moment of what you're finding those limitations of supply are. But first, um, we're just going to go through the panel and just get an overview of, of, of what, you know, some of those opportunities and challenges are of that growth, that projected growth um, in, in the industry. OJ. 
Yeah, certainly from the um, <clears throat> the the very niche perspective of uh, a hop grower in Australia, um, those headline figures of you know if the Australian industry was to approach 20% of volume by whatever date it might be, uh, that's quite a that's 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 quite a big issue for us because we couldn't facilitate that currently, and we've actually been over the last three or four years progressively. Uh, pursuing a change agenda in our business to try and align ourselves with what we see the trends in growth um, yeah, as being. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we're at a point now where we've um, adjusted our variety mix, um, increased production on our existing resources over the last couple of years, and now it's it's really about um, capital investment and pursuing expansion of total capabilities inside our business um, to keep up with with uh, where we see the trends going. You know, we've got confidence in that. Uh, we, we've got enough confidence in the Australian trajectory as well as coupled with our export markets, of course, that, uh, that we are going ahead and spending, uh, you know, continuing to spend millions of dollars on our farms on, on new machinery, new land, new trellising, uh, new propagation facilities, you know, the works. So it's a, um, it's a, it's a big issue for us uh, in terms of supply surety and staying in line with our customers' expectations and the growth in their products. Uh, we don't want to, we don't want to have a scenario where a beer goes gangbusters, and uh, and, a, and a hop of ours, which was a core element of that recipe, is uh, blended away or dropped out compl completely through a lack of supply surety. That's a that's a worst case scenario for us, and we're we're really busting our balls to keep in uh, keep in line with um, with the industry, and it's. It's bloody tough. Sean. Uh, yeah, I, I guess um, I guess I, I look at one of the opportunities in uh, certainly around malt. A large uh, part of our malt supplies to Asia, and that um, is to a specification that um, I guess in the past probably hasn't um, worried too many people because uh, the, the majority of the the brewers in the country brew with adjunct so that um, a, an attenuation of, of malt that is relatively low doesn't really worry anyone. You're shooting for a fairly low target anyway. Uh, with the rise of craft uh, brewing and, and people uh, brewing different styles of beer, that malt <coughs> may be a little bit hot or it may, be, it may ferment a little bit too low. So the, uh, the craft guys, I think, get uh, a little bit of what's around the edges from the uh, from the maltings who are still uh, their main market is going to be uh, to Asia and, and to the bigger breweries um, so part of the conversation I'd like to see is how we uh, look at a an alternative malt stream whether that's variety based or um, or uh, batch to batch based through the maltings to uh, to get some uh, malt of a specification that is a lot more interesting for uh, for 100 percent malt brewers so that's uh, an interesting conversation to have. Andrew. Yes. So <laughs> I'm well, thanks. Yeah, good. <laughs> Happy to be here. But yeah, I'm glad to hear too. <laughs> so um, the other brewers here probably face the same issue, but probably the last three years, uh, by about September, October, we're talking to our hop supplier, who is a, a, an intermediary, to figure out what is going to be challenging for the next... Uh, nine, 12 months and, and what we'll be able to get access to. And usually by uh, about January, we've actually bought all of our hops and we've got them in our store so that we know um, we've got the right package sizes, we've got the, the, the production lots that we preferred. Um, but it means we're sitting on 
close to 12 months worth of stock, which is you know not great for cash flow. Um, and we, we sort of manage our way through that. There are years have been years that we haven't been able to get what we wanted, and just recently we had to pre-purchase hops for a product that we hadn't yet made and were sort of punting that it would be sort of a, something we'd want to make and also punting on the volume, which was, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I guess one of the questions I'd have um, for, the, for the grain producers is, do they see grain shortages as being a problem for, for, um, for, for, for brewers? Um, just answering that question now, that's a bit close to that. Um, get a bit of feedback. The, the, issue, the question there is in relation to um, supply. At the moment, the cereal grain markets around the world is an oversupply. Uh, we're seeing a lot of price pressure down. So you're seeing here in Victoria growers making different choices about what they're growing this year and, and where they can and where their soils allow, they're growing alternate crops. Um, particularly in my region, in the Wimmera, where the black self-mulching grey clays are, we can grow a lot of pulses uh, and oilseeds. So you've seen a swing away from cereals. But I, I don't think you're going to see a shortage of supply of cereal grains. What you and probably have seen out of Victoria this last couple of seasons is very poor quality um, in general. So that's, that's probably one of the, the issues that we face. Um, and certainly, if you look at the export market in the 14-15 year, Australia shipped 4.4 million tonne of uh, grain into China. Um, and what we're seeing the Chinese at the moment, and maybe do, um, Dean might want to make a comment about the market, but the, the Chinese at the moment are a bit more reluctant to be purchasing at the moment because of some internal um, policies. They're not so much about quality generally, um, from just looking from the outside, whereas the high value markets like Korea and Japan um, tend to look at quality um, a lot more. So as a, um, as the smallest brewer on this panel, I, I think what what I say or input is, you know, just a very, very small rounding error, if you like, from um, in terms of production, but we're a brewery that's grown quite quickly from where we stood. And to hear you say that there's a uh, global sort of oversupply of certain grains, you know, a, a rational producer, I would have thought, is looking at that and seeing a market like Craftbury growing so fast and saying, wow, that, what, a, what a great opportunity to diverse away from export into um, domestic markets and, uh, and you know, grow a value-added product. Um, I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations. Um, I've been part of the CBI data-crunching team trying to work out how big the craft beer market is in Australia. and really rough numbers, like we can argue the toss either way. Basically, craft in Australia, including the, the big big guys, is about 150 million litres worth of beer a year. And if you back out, you know, a 5% ABV on average and people are using different systems, etc. but rough numbers, um, that equates to, you know, 200 grams per litre of beer and you're looking at around about 25,000, 30,000 tonnes of... Um, of grain going into that, that, that market to service that. So, you know, that then you split between an export and an import component and you say to, to guys like us, well, what proportion are you importing and what proportion are you uh, using domestically? And uh, we use a very high proportion of imported grains, probably um, north of 80%, uh, which is, you know, fine when you're very, very tiny, but when you're growing, um, uh, that's not sustainable uh, into the future. So, 
you know, we as a, as a, as a small but growing brewery look to um, secure that supply domestically. Um, but as you say, the, the quality's got to be there for, for what we're receiving out of the, um, out of the international market. Um, and again, trying to work with suppliers and, and, and getting a voice when you're producing bugger all beer a year. Just back to the first. Oh, no. Just back to the very first question about the consumption um, scenario. So we've been quite actively promoting the fact that internationally and globally by the year 2050, we're going to see uh, nine billion people on the earth. So we're going to see a natural increase in consumption. So the 20% figure, I'd, I'd say, well, yeah, where's the number where they we're predicting it to be? Certainly, I think if you look at any bar you walk into now in Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, wherever I go, there's a whole tap full of different beers on, on label. So if you look back 30 years ago, there was probably two taps of two different types of beer. So everybody's got a different palate now. So we're seeing that as a change. The other thing that we're competing with as farmers is there's a deregulation of the industry. So 30 years ago, there was one variety grown essentially, which was schooner. It's taken the industry probably 20 to 25 years to almost get rid of that um, usage of schooner. And obviously um, our relationship started with Barrett's and Dean um, and Angelo way back some 30 odd years ago, growing a new variety uh, in a closed loop marketing situation. But today, I think, uh, look, before I came, there was something like 17 registered malt varieties in Australia, and that's probably maybe even increased recently. Uh, there's another three or four new varieties sitting under those varieties and one we actually put a brand new variety for release in the ground in four years time yesterday so um, so there's a lot of change at our end too but as far as the trade goes in australia and, and where where we're seeing things change a lot is that the bulk handlers are unable to store 17 different varieties okay they also have in the past, um, and this is a bit out of school, but they've actually blended feed barley with malt barley and traded that internationally. But what they're finding, of course, is with 17 different varieties, they don't know what their feed stack looks like anymore because they've got all these different varieties and if they're blending that in, well, what's the outturn? And, of course, the customer's not happy, are they? It's pretty simple. So where I think there is opportunities, um, it's similar to the way that we've obviously worked with Barrett's is in terms of product integrity, variety grown, known proteins, known qualities, they know the output at the other end and so they're confident in what they're selling to the next market and we're confident when we're growing it that we're going to be able to sell it. So going back to that supply thing, that's, that's something that consciously a lot of growers really think about is, well, if I grow this variety, what am I going to do with it? Who wants it? Where am I going to get to? But unfortunately what I'm seeing now, there's a lot of pressure and growers are steering away from growing malt barley because of the risks in terms of trying to grow a malt barley variety. So what they're looking for is the highest yielding variety and tons rule a day. So bulk to bulk. Um, and that you'll find that happening in the wheat market as well. It's not just specific to, to barley, but what we're seeing right across Australia is this big trend, bulk to bulk. So as much tons as we can grow, put it through the system and, and then get it out there. Um, I don't know whether that's the best long-term thing for the Australian grain sector, but that's certainly the, the messages that are coming back. Um, and if you want to grow more specific varieties, then you've got to start looking at premiums for those varieties that you want, and then um, having that relationship, which is what um, we were having a chat before we started this panel. Is there any subsidies available um, to produce specialty varieties that the, the craft industry is 
Well, no, it's the, so the, the Australian grains industry is unique in the world where we don't have any subsidisation at all. So we deal on a, a daily front. That's why we're sharp about everything that's new in technology. We're sharp about looking at the market because guess what? We all have to. We've all got loans. We've all got to make payments. So we've got to be sharp about our business sense. Um, I think the issue for the craft brewers, and we touched on this last year, and, and I thought it was, and I actually talked to a lot of growers about that night last year because it was an eye-opener to me um, for a whole range of reasons, and we actually dug up some material, which I talked to Catherine about, the GRDC, Grains Research Development Corporation. We're actually doing some work in this area as well, which was rather unique. But um, certainly getting growers to grow different varieties is always a, a, about a price premium. So if they're going to grow a Hindmarsh barley, which is probably pretty crappy, I think, in terms of moulding because high beta-glucan in it, um, then it yields, on average, probably 10 or 15% higher than the next varieties. But these new varieties they're releasing are on an equal platform of some of the better quality varieties, like Flinders that we've just started to grow. Um, and this, I think this new line that we're putting the ground is supposed to, to come up to as well, um, which makes it that we can sell it to a, a wide range of people. Yet if you go down the line, I like Gardner. So Gardner was the, or Gardner, however you want to say it, it's a Western Australian variety. It was a predominant variety. You've probably all used it, I imagine, um, at some point or stage. But it's now phased out because these new varieties have come along. And if you want Gardner to be grown well, then you've got to pay a premium. And just on our farm, on a five tonne a hectare, if we get 300 mil of growing season rainfall, we'll grow around roughly five tonnes a hectare of barley. Um, and if we're putting Flinders in the ground, I can expect if it was Gardner at five, Flinders will be five and a half. So you do the math. If I'm going to grow um, Gardner, then I'm going to have to have a premium to try and compensate for that uh, differential in price. Just, just on that in terms of malt varieties, like um, there's a whole bunch of romance about some of the, you know, we talked about Marisotto being a romantic sort of variety of malt, but you've mentioned a few Gardner, Highmarsh, etc. How much... Do you know about the actual flavour outcome in terms of malt on, on that front? So there's obviously suitability for agricultural, like agronomic performance and suitability for malting. But what about actual flavour? Do we know much about that? No, this is a, a very good question. And uh, I can tell you that uh, every farmer in my area will flock up to a beer night. <laughs> um, and uh, funnily enough, we've actually got one planned. So Grain Corp, who are the um, owners of Barrett's, essentially, are running... Um, these information nights with growers right around certainly Victoria and into New South Wales because they're wanting to inform growers more about the quality of the taste as well. So I, I found them extremely informative and we've actually got one in my hometown, Repanyat, this year. Uh, so, but um, Ralph over here from Barrett's and Dean uh, obviously he heavily involved in that process of trying to educate growers um, about the actual flavour and the quality and etc. So, but at the end of the day, um, economics are economics and it'll all come down to that bottom line and it's like we were saying before about the craft market scenario if the economics stack up then yeah we can do business um, the last thing I want to hear as an Australian is that you're importing barley from overseas to malt so I'd love to know and I reckon every grower outside the room I represent would love to know how the hell do we sort that out um, and so I think it's, it's probably a, a conversation after the, today and ongoing and I think we, we touched on a bit of that last year but nothing really happened <laughs> so just following on from the question around sort of uh, performance in beer, sensory performance in beer, is the GRDC doing any structured work towards screening for 
um, varieties that bring different flavours rather than just being uh, yield driven? Is, is anyone trying to decouple bulk to bulk? I reckon this might be a question for Dean actually, because Dean, um, I don't want to dob you in, but you're a part of that national malt barley accreditation program with the MB Quip, or maybe it's Ralph. I mean, both of them are involved in this um, on technical and flavour. I could give yeah. you the farmer version, but I think you, get, you want the more technical. I'm not aware of very much work going on. I think there's a little bit of work going on in WA. I don't know all the details. I think what does sort of get picked up is that um, through the accreditation of new varieties, um, that new varieties have to go through a hoop of two years where they get uh, malted and then they get pilot brewed and or commercial brewed and in the process the beers get uh, evaluated for flavour by an expert flavour panel and um, certainly when they go through our malt house, our customers, for our customers to accept them even once they're accredited by the national system, you know, our customers, uh, particularly Japan and CUB will sort of um, evaluate them as well. So, so in a sense, the system does pick up any flavour anomalies and we've had that over the years with some varieties. Uh, one particular variety, Franklin, one of the Japanese brewers didn't like that. Um, CUB picked up a flavour anomaly in another variety. So, so you have sort of inadvertently you do pick it up to some extent, but it, I don't know that it's particularly formal at the moment. Yeah, coupled with that, of course, with the deregulation of the breeding programs as well as the deregulation of the barley industry, you, we've probably got two major breeders of barley uh, now in Australia. So they're always competing for market share um, because endpoint royalties, so when we grow a variety, we pay an endpoint royalty back. So ultimately, a variety like Hindmarsh, um, probably nearly 80% of the Victorian barley crop would have been Hindmarsh without Latrobe um, coming on board. And now a lot, of a lot have swung over to Latrobe because they get the benefit of yield, but the benefit of Latrobe, better quality, and, and, uh, and it's now approved as a moulding variety. How long does that approval process take, like from, from breeding? We were discussing something like... Oh, it's, yeah, look, it's breeding... The lag time in breeding is massive. Um, you've got pre-breeding, you've got well, germplasm, um, for essentially, then you go to pre-breeding, and then you go to the point where we are at the moment, we're four years out from that line I've just put in the ground, probably two years of, of, um, of them looking at it and then being probably taken down for Barrett's or Malt Europe, somebody in Victoria, to micro-malt and then malt and then and assess. So it's probably a good seven, eight years uh, at least um, and in that process, as uh, Ralph pointed out, like there's a two-year evaluation process where they actually evaluate it. Now, at the end of that, if you're a commercial breeding company and it doesn't make it, you know, there's a lot of investment. And so, and that's the thing. I mean, what drives the Australian barley industry, unfortunately, won't be the craft beer market. It's going to be the international market. And then somewhere in amongst that, filled it out, um, is, is a process whereby if the market grows, the quantities grow, then it's the linkage between the grower and the molster and the brewer over here. It'd be, be fair to say, though, in that process that, as an attribute, flavour would be fairly low on the, uh, on the list. I mean, you're, what, what I'm hearing is you, you're saying that it's being tasted and as long as it doesn't taste bad or fundamentally different to what we're used to, then that's okay, rather than this is actually really interesting, this flavour, and, and that's something we need to explore. Um, it's more, uh, you know, in terms of 
yield being very important and, uh, and other attributes, flavour, would be fairly um, middle of the range in terms of importance? Yeah, I'd say that's probably a fair comment, you know, that we're looking for problem flavours rather than looking for opportunities for varieties that actually are giving us something, something you know, additive, quite right. And that's driven by Big Bear, is that right? In terms of what they need, of, uh, in terms of the quality of the malt? That's right. Yeah. I think the... You know, from what I can see, maybe Dean wants to comment on this too, but from what I can see, some of the, the big breweries, you know, um, don't particularly have, a, you know, a, a major feel about uh, varieties from the point of view of flavours, providing there aren't problems with flavours. They do have opinions about um, varieties and they spend years evaluating the varieties in terms of commercial performance and brewing performance. You know, but um, if, from my understanding, I'm not too sure, you know, what their thoughts are. I think I'll probably go back a little, probably to about 10, 15 minutes ago, where some of the questions were really about what do we do about, for me, it's security of supply. Yeah. Okay, we talked about hops. So what we've tried to do as molsters and what we've tried to do as part of the industry, yeah, we understand craft for Barrett Burst and probably makes up about 5% of our production capacity. But what's important is what we've tried to do is f select varieties suitable for the craft market that are mainstream varieties and varieties that are grown over a large geographic area. And that's really important in Australia's production environment in that we can be doing everything right. Here we are sitting in May. Andrew's either just almost completed sowing or, or is currently still sowing. He's um, had some good opening rains. Everything can go right through and then we get to September and the tap turns off. Right. So if we're concentrating on a specific variety for a specific craft market and we've only got it in one region and the tap turns off, then where's, you know, where's our other option? We haven't got one. So we've always tried to pick varieties that are multi-purpose, ones that can be both suitable for the export market but also suitable for craft. That is becoming a little bit more difficult in today's environment with all of the new varieties coming on that seem to all be focused to um, solid adjunct brewing in the Asian marketplace. But we're always looking out for one of those varieties that will work well for an Australian-based craft brewer, whether it be with adjunct or without. But for us, it's really that security of supply that when you come to us today or tomorrow in a year's time, we will always have malt available on hand. There'll be no excuse if we've had a poor barley crop. So we source our barley from southern Queensland all the way right through into South Australia and also in Western Australia where we've got a malting plant. So we, you know, sometimes we're bringing barley from 500 kilometres away down into Geelong. And, and that was a classic case last year in that in Andrew's production environment in the Wimmera, the, the, both the production and the quality just wasn't there. So we've sourced a terrific amount of barley in southern New South Wales where the season finished quite well. We also try and focus part of our production in irrigated areas. Irrigated land in Australia is roughly only probably 1%, 2% of the yeah, of max of the production area. But we're heavily involved with growers around that Griffith, um, um, Colliambly, mm -hmm. southern New South Wales, where they do have the availability of irrigation water. So we have good relationships there with growers so that even in difficult years, Barrett Burson will always be able to find its 300,000 tonnes of barley, right? So we're not worried about the export 
barley market into China. They'll take care of themselves. They can buy whatever they want in barley terms. But what's important is that we can buy enough raw material of the best quality we can to service all of our customers. And, and again, uh, the breeding company, exactly what uh, Dean's saying is that they're looking for those varieties that they can get out into that mainstream market, as you can imagine, and getting those royalties back so they can breed another variety. Just in uh, terms of uh, the pilot uh, examples of uh, uh, barley evaluation, certainly uh, it was done at, at CUB uh, under a controlled system so that um, the, all the new barleys were actually evaluated against a control for that year. That control was an agreed one, could be Gardner, could be anything. Um, but that set the con control standard. So um, if there's flavour divergence from that, it uh, raised the potential issue at the, at the time. Um, normally, you, know, you try to as assess it against the performance and the uh, flavour profile of the beer formed from uh, against the controls. So uh, we are aiming for... We, uh, I, I used to be part of the empire as well. Um, we were aiming uh, to produce a relatively neutral flavour impact from new uh, varieties. So uh, the flavour issue didn't come in, into it a, a great deal. Just to offer a, a counterpoint to that, in our um, in-house breeding program, we're actively seeking, uh, you know, Varietal and flavour differences, it is actually the core principle of our, apart from the agronomic hurdles, we are not looking for a Galaxy 2.0, okay? We're, we, <laughs> we actively, like, uh, screen. Not that we discard anything that hasn't got a nice, intense fruit, you know, profile, but we have a, a, a set of criteria that we are absolutely trying to target, and it is to continue to bring hops with, um, you know, choice and variety and flavour to brewers to help them further their product offerings out to consumers. And, and, and frankly, it sounds like the, uh, it's the complete opposite to what the malt uh, or the barley um, screening programs are about. And is flavour the main driver for malt in, in terms of beer? Like, excuse me, I'm, I'm actually from an arts background, so I will ask these very base questions. So is, is flavour the driver of, of what you would consider for malt in craft in Australia? Well, I think we want extract, so we want to we extract sugar. Yep. And it's got to be relatively easy to sum up and then that sort of those two things find their way through the whole brew house. We uh, we actually use a a lot of imported malts. Um, one of the problems that we came up with early on, so we have a we have a small brewery. It's a it's an 18 hectolitre brewery, and w our roller mill is um, barely better than a feed stock roller mill. Um, so it's pretty agricultural, very difficult to adjust. Um, the run out on the rollers is uh, makes up about 25% of what I'd say was our target mill gap. Um, so we don't have a lot of room for variation in grain size. And what we found when we first begun was that we'd put um, uh, you know, a local pale malt through with some specialty malts, 
and with the crudeness of our mill, we'd either obliterate the whole lot or we'd have um, the specialty malts passing through nicely and the pale malt passing through partly uncracked. Um, <clears throat> so for us, the choice to use more imported base malts um, that are slightly plumper, and we've got a couple of varieties that we like, um, is just really based on the capital expenditure and the size of our, our brewery. And I guess the only way for us to solve that is to get bigger and get a better mill. Yep, craft industry growth. And for me, I think that points through, well, what is malt flavour? And I'd be interested to hear from some of the brewers, is it your specialty malts that is imparting that flavour? So we can control that on the same barley variety just to how we kiln it or how we, whether we take that pale malt and turn it into a roasted malt product, a specialty malt product, or because it is very hard to pick malt flavour differences in pale malt, in my opinion. It's more so much what we do at the end of the malting process in its kilning or its roasting to develop flavours. And I'd be interested to hear some of the brewers' um, opinions on that. Anyone who want to ask? I was, I was going to say, I think... And I hate to speak for everybody, but I think um, a lot of the time the malt flavour or the choice for, to go for the overseas stuff is driven by the specialty malts and we're, we're probably enamoured by um, the specialty malts coming out of Germany and the UK, etc., and some of the American, the new American stuff. So uh, I guess the question is, is, is the quality of the specialty malts driven by the varietal or is it driven by what happens in the, in the malting? Yeah, I mean, I, I disagree with that, uh, that, that, that pale malt, um, you can't tell the difference between the flavour. I think that one of the things that's happened over the last 30 or 40 years with adjunct brewing is that we've probably lost that um, attribute as, a, as, as an important thing to be measured because the beers are um, a lot thinner and they don't have that malt flavour that, um, that you get from 100% malt. I mean, Heineken and Beck's, they're brewed here. They all send their malt over from overseas for a very specific reason, and that's because it's a flavour profile that they want. They won't use Australian pale. I don't... I, I mean, personally, um, Australian pale malt, for me, it's not my top um, choice as a, as, a, uh, as a pale malt base in terms of flavour. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm not certainly dissing it at all, um, but it's not my number one choice. Um... I think that as we move back into um, craft, which is a lot more about malt and flavour, it, it's something that probably needs to be put back onto the table in terms of uh, importance and, and difference. Yeah. Uh, I think the question that we haven't sort of asked is um, all the brewers, you know, beat the drum about innovation and innovating and stepping up and bringing new flavours to the table. like. Um, you know, can the same? It certainly sounds from what OJ's saying that you know they're on the on the same path in terms of hop varietals and, and discovering um, you know the latest hop bomb hop that that comes out of the the fields down there. Um, can the same be said with the infrastructure that's in place in the uh, Australian malt industry? Are you know are, as growers are we and malsters are we meeting the mark in terms of innovation? And if, if we're not, you know, Waters Brewers, can we, can we provide you so that, you know, we, we get there? Um, as I said, huge importer of malt. We don't want to be. Um, keeps me up some nights. 
I don't want to be. But yeah, no. Well, I'm hearing all this importing and I'm thinking, you know, how sad that is. But uh, I guess it's a reality. If we haven't got the varieties and we haven't got what you need, then somehow we have to maybe find a way. And if there's an opportunity and the economics stack up, then we need to look at it. But I think coming out of last year um, and the discussion around um, the group that we... Um, work with in the Grains Research Development Corporation doing work on micro-moulding um, in containers, essentially. So if there's a variety being grown, a grower um, could maybe co-invest perhaps with a brewer and put a um, container moulding set up on their farm, put the varieties in known quality, known source of origin and, and maybe there's some opportunities there. But I think the total overall scale of the market in Australia, I think the, uh, the smallest mould house, correct me, but I think it's nearly Bar uh, Burnley. Ralph, is that in Australia? I mean, in terms of um, commercial moulding that we're probably, aware of? Probably the malt house at Delacombe with Joe's. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, but they're still talking probably, what, minimum 30 or 40 tonne? That yep. one? Yeah. That's about the smallest. So, yeah. So we're talking about major um, sort of quantities, which going on last year, I was hearing guys wanting like a tonne bag of malt, not 10 tonne. So, so that's kind of the economics. Um, I don't know what you're paying for your malt, but I mean, it all comes down to economics about whether the a farmer or the industry invests in trying to make that better for you. I mean, as your market grows and, and uh, you know, the conversation today about this importing, well, you know, I can go back and have a talk to the breeders and, and see what they're doing, but my sense is that they're just still looking at mainstream. But uh, sometimes when they have varieties go through that don't get classified or evaluated, maybe there are some characteristics in those that don't actually ever meet the market that might suit a craft market, perhaps, potentially. But again, if we don't have the numbers in terms of scale of this industry, and I think, David, we talked about that last year, um, you know, if we don't get those numbers, then it's very hard for people to make, you know, um, sound advice and investment advice, uh, decisions. You know, we've spoken a lot about different things in the last half an hour or so, but I think at the end of the day, you know, the reality is that, you know, craft makes up a small percentage in this country, and of that percentage, you know, you've got Lyon and Foster's a big percentage of that. So the reality is that whether it's Barrett's or Joe's creating malt for us is kind of not going to happen. And at the end of the day, when you really just sort of take a step back and you look, you're selling a carton of beer for you know, 50 or $60 out of the brewery, or you're selling a keg for $250, $300 out of the brewery, the big, the big thing is that a piece of that is a, the raw material piece is such a small little percentage of that. So at the end of the day, you know, whether we're bitching and moaning, whether, you know, you're going to grow this variety or that variety, the reality is that we as little people can sit here and say, geez, it'd be great to have this and be great to have that. The reality is it's not going to happen because you might grow one acre or 10 acres of this. It'll end up at Barrett's. It'll end up in a great big uh, silo. There's no way that's going to get separated out. There's no way you're going to get value out of that coming back through the brewery and... You know, the, the reality is that it's just not going to happen. And uh, I think we as brewers, you know, we need to uh, understand that, you know, grain is very, very important and there are other options out there. You know, the likes of Barrett's, the likes of Joe's, they're, they're really creating grain, whether it be export or local, for, you know, 95% of the market. And we sit here as a very small percentage of the market. The reality is, though, that that... that that cost within that keg or carton is such a small percentage, so we've got to stop, you know, worrying about it. At the end of the day, you know, the guys are making, you know, reasonably, reasonably good quality malt, and there are other options out there. Behind the pole over there, you've got the Vayman uh, malts. You've got some really good malts coming out of uh, the UK. You've got great malts coming out of the US, 
at the end of the day, if you spend a dollar at the moment on a Barrett's, a uh, dollar a kilo at the moment, if you spend two dollars a kilo, the reality that that cost actually then, you know, rolls back into a carton or a keg is pretty small percentage of the whole cost of what that keg and carton is. Um, you know, I, I, I just think there are other options out there. You know, we just spent uh, quite a few weeks in the US and, you know, I, I think there's other options, you know, whether you go into your own maltings, whether you actually start the micro maltings, and I know there's a few, I'm not sure if there's guys in, actually in the room at the moment. We talk about, we talk a lot about hops and we talk a lot about malt, but at the end of the day there are other options out there that if you're willing to put your hand in the pocket and actually spend a few dollars, there are other options that you might be able to create different flavours and create different uh, products from different grains and different hops that are actually out there. We've seen what's happened in, the, in Australia and the US in the last you know, 10 years with hops. You know, the guys have actually listened and sure it takes a long time to actually grow these different hops. It'll take a lot longer to actually grow different malts and actually get those malts through the malting plants and get a silo big enough for the craft industry to actually use and you know I take my hat off to the to the conversation but I think at the end of the day there's uh, you know a small percentage of uh, of the actual cost of that carton and that uh, keg you know and there are other options and I think what's interesting also there Brad is what a lot of people probably don't realize is that we're growing a variety now in Victoria and also in southern New South Wales called Westminster and Westminster is a UK variety Right? We're starting to see some of these varieties that are adaptable in our high rainfall environment. You're starting to see uh, large plant breeders, we had a visit about a month ago, um, a French breeding company who have developed a variety they've called RG Planet. So their idea, as in the title, that that variety will be grown worldwide in every single barley production environment in the world. So we're seeing Peroni beer brewed here under licence. It's with Australian malt. Stella brewed under licence is Australian malt. And I do know the Heineken brewed at two is, is from Australian malt. So yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely you know. some good malts out there being grown and being malted by the likes of Barrett's and Joe White's. I think as us as craft brewers who want to diversify and actually create different flavours, we don't actually have to keep looking on Barrett's, you know, and the local farmers to create these uh, very small, you know, plots of ground to grow these very small, you know, bits of barley and wheat. There are other options out there. Sorry, I also just want to say, I mean, obviously a small percentage of uh, grain grown ends up in the hop fields and those things, as we just heard from Michael uh, Jontov, you know, they've been trialled through the Empire Breweries and at the end of the day they're looking for very different things than what small maltsters, sorry, small brewers might actually want to be looking for. I might counter that argument. Yeah. Um, it's, it's fair to, to make those judgment calls about never, but um, I can guarantee you that the Bendigo community banks would never happen if we had had that attitude. Um, it started in a hometown, and if there's a need and there's a market and there's always usually a way, uh, the beautiful thing about farmers in particular is that we're real, well, we have to react to the market because we live by it. Um, we're in intuitive and ingenuitive, if that makes sense. Whereas if you give us a problem, we'll solve it. I think from a grower perspective, you're 100% right. And I take my hat off to the, the pain and effort that farmers actually go through and, you know, the efforts that they go through to actually create the barley that we then malt. There's probably a, a gap between the farmer and the brewer, this craft brewer at the moment in this country. And I guess that's what I thought this was about. It's finding out what here. that gap is. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. You know, this is a fact-finding mission. 
for the for the grains industry and uh, the craft brewing market because um, until last year I I didn't even know that this existed this um, event and uh, you know you're talking about a significant amount of tonnage and. 20 to 25,000 tonne, although I know a couple of growers, who one's on my board who grows that himself. So, um, but, you know, it's still an opportunity and, um, and the, if the price is right, things can work. And I think that where the Grains Research Development Corporation have obviously seen an opportunity as well in furthering the discussion on research is that they see an opportunity to potentially be able to do things. Um, and I think as Dean's pointed out, you know, like all these varieties and these new ones coming in, I think it was Syngenta that had that originally, wasn't it, Dean? That they came out, um, Syngenta, with Indigrain. They'd run those varieties at home uh, about five, six years ago. Westminster, they're on trial, they're all numbers. So, so they're international because of this deregulation in, you know, in breeding. International um, breeders are looking at Australia and Australian soil types and, and obviously high rainfall zones and, and the evolution in the grains in industry in Australia has seen all these high rainfall zones which were traditionally just stock country, mm. cattle and sheep, are now the highest and more consistent producers of the best quality barley. I think probably as another example too, um, we're currently growing a barley for a Japanese brewer that has a distinctive trait of low locks which of course assists in head retention. So there's, there is that ability and we're happy to do it where there is a market and there is a barley, we will match the grower with the malt to the brewer. Yeah. So it, it can be done, it is out there. It's really looking for the signals yeah. from the brewers yeah. as to what you want. We'll make it happen. Yeah. So I guess, I guess, um, Brad, it, your your argument that it can't happen, that it's not happening, is now being countered. I mean, and the the base premise of, the, the, of this session is if the Australian craft beer industry is going to grow, um, how can we meet that in Australia? Um, and and there is research being done on micro maltings that you've spoken about. So I mean, the question is, how do we actually get there? as well. As a brewer looking from the outside into the uh, eyes of a, a grain grower, it seems like you're facing what we as brewers did sort of 10 years ago, um, in that innovation and differentiation is what set us apart as an industry. Um, and you know, you're now grappling with that challenge um, 10 years down the track um, as this industry uh, grows. And I, I guess the, the the key overriding point to take away that all of us brewers sitting here and, and hop growers especially um, is that the industry's not going anywhere and it's only, you know, it, you can not get out of bed in the morning as a craft brewer and grow at 30% a year. Um, it's, it's that simple. So um, the industry's not going anywhere. Um, it's only getting bigger. You know, you're, you're talking numbers of 6, 7, 8% of, of the total beer market equating to about 150 million litres of beer a year. Um, you know, I think it's a good news story and we can, um, you know, with the right attitude, I think we can really potentially create something. That's not to say we won't ever be importing more, but um, I, I think well, some stuff can be done if there's a, a better flow of communication, as Brad alluded to in his opening speech, about between what's happening and where the data and where the numbers are. And I think the CBIA is doing what they can to, um, to facilitate that. You know, I threw a few back-of-the-envelope figures out there. Um, there's been quite a... Um, bit of work over a year's worth of work go into that. Um, they're, 
you know, that, that's coming along and, and we're trying to, to get you guys what you need, I guess. Look, and, you know, that's the whole thing about coming today is to create the relationships. I mean, our um, business is built around relationship with Barrett's. It's built around relationship with all of our customers in terms of how we sell our own produce. And that's the way that growers are now starting to shape. Uh, I'm kicking myself. I should have brought you um, Growing Australian Grain, which is a, uh, a booklet that we launched in July last year. Um, which would actually give you a bit of insight into the changes that are happening in our grains industry. Is that um, online as well? It's on, my, it's on our website yeah. under www.grainproducers.com.au um, and uh, following this I'll try and get some books to David or, or whoever um, on that as well so you can distribute them. But just giving you an idea, evolution is happening mm. on a daily basis. Technology is changing things mm. faster than we know. And uh, so I, I don't see anything I've heard here that we can't try and accommodate in the future. Well, I think and it's all about yeah. creating this conversation and bringing the right people into the room yeah. uh, and talking about how you might achieve it. And, so and, and clearly the big players like Barrett's and others that are there are, are going to be a massive part of that. And there's a couple of things here. One is data is getting the data. So um, the CBIA has uh, last year put, I think, their second annual call out for data. And I think the more data we have on the industry that we can gather, uh, the more powerful we're able to create, uh, the more we're able to create powerful arguments. Um, so if we uh, send out a survey, um, it'd be great if you could respond to it because it's only with this data that we can actually be able to build cases. What I wanted to go to was, um, was this concept of not getting out of bed and growing 30% per year. And... Uh, <laughs> And, um, Perhaps and I exaggerated a little bit. But <laughs> it sounded great. I'm Linda and Vangeliska. Um, but, but the concept of what happens with what, what do breweries need to do uh, working in with raw materials in terms of their, their growth and their planning for growth? Because, um, you know, there seems to be a lot that the actual breweries need to do in advance to, to, to be able to play into the cycles of, um, of the supply of raw materials. All I, all I meant by that was the tide is rising at 30% a year. So um, as, a, as a brewer, if you're doing your job right and, and you are willing to invest, you should be growing at at least 30% because that's what the market's growing at. And then there's sort of sub-arguments about whether it's regional breweries or really small breweries that are making up that growth. But as a general rule of thumb, something that I thought would appeal to the grain growers was um, if you know that market is growing at 30% per annum, um, that was a... Yeah, very simple statistic. I do get out of bed in the morning, um, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was my point. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, but I think it's interesting um, to, to have such growth and to be small businesses and how do you plan in advance? Like what do you need to create to be able to stabilise that growth, to be able to meet that growth, to be able to work with your, your suppliers to be able to ensure the, the security of supply of your raw materials? Oh, it's a pretty, one, pretty easy one, really. I mean, you've got to have a good business plan. You've got to know what you're going to be doing this year, next year, and, you know, three or four years out. And, you know, probably more so with hops, but it, you know, might happen with grain as well going forward. You've just got to have contracts. You know, we've got very long contracts with HPA, with Galaxy. Galaxy's a very important hop in Pacific Isle for us. And, you know, if Galaxy falls over, yeah, we're in a bit of trouble. But 
you, know, you can't just sit here and go, geez, I hope it doesn't fall over. At the end of the day, you need to have those contracts in place you know, with these guys. So these guys have a pretty firm understanding of you know, what your requirements are. And as I said right in the beginning, you've got to be able to have that relationship with these guys across the gamut. You know, it's not just water, malt, hops and yeast. You've got to be talking to your carton suppliers, your crown seal supplier, your, you know, your keg suppliers. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of raw materials that go into putting beer out in venues across this country and it's really important to understand what your business plan is, understand what your volumes are and, you know, create the relationships and get the contracts in place. Because if you've got a contract there, yeah, you know, you're, you're probably a little bit ahead of, you know, ahead of many, uh, many brewers, certainly in this country. I know that many brewers in this country just simply don't have contracts and it baffles me. And, you know, I know that we sit here and, you know, we're, we're producing a fair bit of beer and we actually need a lot of Galaxy for Pacific Ale and, you know, the, the other beers that we produce. But you've got to have contracts and whether you're big, small or indifferent, you need to have those contracts because you want to be able to sleep at night. As I'll probably leave OJ to it, but uh, you know there was issues with the hop harvests, you know this year, and you know if you if you didn't have contracts, you know you're really staring down the barrel of not being able to supply. And there's been issues in Europe with various uh, hop, uh, you know, hop warehouses burning down over the years, and you know there's, there's going to be issues going forward. At the end of the day, it's a it's a crop that's grown in the ground, and it's up to Mother Nature to see what actually happens. And without contracts, I think you're you're leaving yourself a little bit blind. And look, I, th I think I'd back Brad up there. If, um, if brewers are willing to enter into long-term agreements, fixed contracts, and we're talking, you know, three years, then that allows us as maltsters to go out to the growers and say, well, here's a barley variety. It's really wanted for our customer. I, I know growers will. Growers will sign up, and therefore with that, it's, it's a partnership throughout the whole chain. So... They'll grow it for you, we'll malt it, brewer will get the supply. But you've got to have a commitment. Yeah, yeah we experienced that in the hop uh, business um, without the intermediary in the middle. Uh, so we, um, we see rapid growth as um, a, real, a really chaotic force in our planning for on-farm activity. So brewers are... Uh, you know, if you exclude, um, you know, the big guys here in Australia, I think the, we sort of kicking around some numbers earlier. The average age of a brewery here in Australia is under three years old or something silly. So the average age is very, very young. Uh, many are experiencing really rapid growth and the ability for a brewery in that situation to plan, <coughs> excuse me, and feed uh, information back into our planning on farm is is really uh, compromised and that that puts a lot of risk in the system for you know us not being able to uh, supply and uh, and of course for you guys in the in the breweries that are growing rapidly not to be able to fulfill all your hopes and dreams for that beer that's going gangbusters um, if you zoom back out from that the uh, the industry issue about data capture is really important for us um, I can have um, individual conversations with individual brewers about the trajectory of their hop use um, but there is also a lot of value in the ability of the industry to be characterised uh, by good data capture so that uh, we can look at more uh, high-level trends about volume growth, about uh, if we can go so far as to say hop consumption rates per litre in the craft sector, that will make our planning on farm more accurate. It will allow, allow us to, uh, to more adequately cater for uh, what we see coming down the track. 
And just on that, uh, so at the ACBC in, two, in Brisbane this year, we'll be doing a bit of the data of the Australian industry. We'll have a, a fair um, uh, whack uh, to be able to give to you, which will be great. Um, how did you, how have you managed your, your security of supply? Um, no, I haven't. <laughs> um, forgot to get out of bed that day. Yeah, forgot, forgot to get out of bed. Um, we... Uh, we're less than two years old as a brewery, so we had some um, early success which made us wake up to the fact that we needed to think about these things that Brad was talking about. Um, and I was having a chuckle to myself. The, the day after we, we won um, an award back in 2014, uh, we went and bought um, two freezers worth of uh, a hop that wasn't readily used in Australia that was created the, the beer that we won the award for. We went and bought two gigantic freezers went and forward bought that and we thought we were being pretty smart. Um, turns out, you know, we churned through that in about three months on the back of that. So we then moved into contracting and, uh, and forward buying uh, our, our hops to, 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 to a large extent, um, probably more so than small brewers um, out and about there do. Uh, but on the malt side, we are beholden to the, to the spot market um, completely. And yeah, so we've... We're a hop forward brewery, so yes, we've we've forward contracted our hops somewhat for for a couple of years out for a very small brewery. But um, you know the size of the the hop purchases that we make probably don't get OJ out of bed in the morning either. So you know, um, you'd, you'd be surprised. <laughs> but if there's money on the table, mate. I mean, <laughs> have you seen his margins? Yeah, I have, I have. I was having a chat to another brewer um, the other day, and. Um, just going back to the import versus uh, export, the import point. Um, and he was saying, well, you know, I got sick of too, having too many middlemen, so I went and bought a container and shipped it in from overseas. I don't know how true that is, but he's saying he's shipping whole containers worth of grain over and almost acting like a co-op himself um, to access certain malt varieties that he felt he was paying too high a price for um, over here. You know, is that a question of too many middlemen or, you know, overzealous returns or anything like that? You know, that, these are some of the issues that brewers um, who are pretty nimble, you know, do themselves to try and work around those issues. And I can, I can tell you, like, it would be very easy to split a couple of containers worth of specialty grain amongst, you know, the 300-odd brewers that we've got. We don't want to do that, but, um, you know, this is what's happening um, given some of the prices, you know, that that we're faced with on certain varieties. So, yeah. Anyone want to comment on them? Well, I mean, from our point of view, I absolutely know every, uh, the destination of every kilo of hops that leaves our business um, into our primary distribution channels and you, you're just not gonna, you're just not gonna be able to re-import it back into Australia cheaper than you can come direct to the source. Wouldn't the principle be if, you've, if, you own the, if you owe the bank a, a million dollars, the bank owns you. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, you own the bank. And with the rate of growth with craft beer, whether it's in Australia or New Zealand, you're, coming, you're going to come, start to come up, was it 25,000 tonne? Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. Okay, if you look at hops, you add all these things up. If the... If the, uh, if the craft beer market which was built on creativity and initiative and innovation and challenging the big guys um what's wrong with that there's a little bit of cooperation competition 
because you're all facing the same issues. You're growing at 30%, whether or not you get out of bed in the morning, um, which that statement's going to haunt you for life. Um, why, why, why wouldn't you start cooperating around these things and, and bringing in um, uh, containers of what you don't have and um, bulk buying competitively with each other? Because, it, I mean, there, there's something about that. It's, a, it's an innovative industry, whether it's here or from New Zealand. You've got, what, 300 uh, brewers here. There's 180-something in New Zealand. Um, New Zealand's growing at around 42%. Um, and, norm, um, you know, your industrial beers are going down at 14 So we're all looking to support and grow um, parts of our economies, which are growing and taking up some of the slack and... In, in the world today, I mean, why not? Well, we kind of do in a way. When we use the likes of Dave, I mean, uh, he's got contacts. At the end of the day, you've got people like Dave who bring the hops in, and you know, whether we're doing it as a complete association or a complete, you know, body, you know, that's what I was saying before. You've got choices, and you can talk to people like Dave. And there's a few people like Dave around in this country and around the world. And you know, there are other options. And I just. One, one thing that we've sort of spoken about before, you know, I love what the, the growers are doing in terms of the grain. Where I was coming from before was more about, you know, the specialty malt stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, we use a lot of Barrett's malt. Uh, you know, it's solid and it does what it does. You know, the real gap, I think, as craft continues to grow is the ability to actually get good quality specialty malt. Uh, you know, Dave's got the Vaim and, uh, you know, banner behind us and there's, you know, there are other options out there, you know, to be able to create and produce and then bring in, uh, you know, very good specialty malts to create great, great beers. And one, one thing to add the comment on, and, and look, it's a challenge for an Australian maltster today working in the export market and the domestic market here, is that Europe has, there's a very low exchange rate, very competitive, the euro's very weak. Low interest rates they have in Europe, what, pretty well zero, right? Their barley is 60 to 70 US dollars a tonne cheaper than ours, okay? So, and container freight rates worldwide are the cheapest they've been for 20 to 30 years. So you can, you can send a box, a container box, a 20-foot box from Australia to Asia and Europe gets it into Asia either the same or slightly cheaper than us, right? So, World trade flows are very good at the moment to be buying European product. Will that continue? I don't know. The euro to the US dollar used to be 1.26. Today it's 1.13. Their interest rates are pretty well zero. I, what happens when interest rates start to rise? Will the euro strengthen? So yes, there's opportunities today, but they may not be there tomorrow. I'd just like to ask a question. Maybe David Cryer himself would, um, would would like to answer this. I'm sort of getting the feeling that Australian base malts are, are pretty poor in quality here, and maybe as some other brewers might want to comment. But just you know, we had Barrett's had Galaxy um, barley years ago, and even before David's time, you know, we had people knocking on the door to say, I think you grew some, uh, Andrew, to say you know it was a great variety. So maybe it's a variety thing, maybe it's not. I don't know. Perhaps David could just enlighten us on that a little bit? Australian base malts, base uh, varieties? I'm not talking about specialty malts because... Well, the one when you were discussing earlier came to mind in terms of um, <coughs> malt flavour is obviously Maris Otter. That's a variety which was uh, <coughs> 1966, I think it began. It's still being demanded by the brewers. 
and the variety Galaxy. It's great, Brendan. You you loved Galaxy, and it, was it a flavour thing? Yeah. So that is a variety we could I think have have a look at, and trying to get growers to grow something like that would be really nice. But we were talking before, and I think Grant mentioned, um, is there any subsidy going on in Australia for the growing of varieties? I stumbled across something recently in the US, in New York at the moment. If you are in the New York state area, you will get a tax break if you use New York-grown products. So the big maltsters over in the US, I, I stumbled across, they're, they're making one called Empire State Malt. And so it is beginning, and I, I think that's the missing piece of the puzzle here, because I think the brewers want something special. I know you guys are more than capable of growing it. I know the maltsters can make it. It's just getting that head of steam up to make it happen. I think that you touched on Galaxy. We grew Galaxy when we first started with um, Bean. Sorry. It was, uh, it was about 83. 1983 was the first barley variety other than schooner we were growing. The trouble with it is agronomically it got phased out um, big time and I would think that if, as I was talking before about where Gardner at five tonne, you'd probably find three and a half to three tonne was the maximum capacity of yield out of that. So you've got the economics and it comes down to the economics issue um, about how those work and, and maybe there's a galaxy type that's in the breeding program that's not going to meet what's currently seen as the idealistic for the, for the major trade, but it's a conversation to have with the breeders and um, I think, yeah, I mean, we're well placed to talk to them about it and see what's going on. But I, I, I can certainly remember, Gal Galaxy was the start of the first really higher yielding, um, even quality types. Um, like Flinders, I've never, we've never grown a barley as good a quality as that. 99.9% uh, .9 retention above a two and a half mil screen. Um, and the, it's just incredible. And even this last year with such a poor finish, yes, it was consistently, there was high screenings, but consistently the average size of what was left was very good. So it's got a very good trade in that barley variety. And I think when we first grew it, I said to Dean, this is the one for us to watch because agronomically it was really good. But it just, Galaxy was that kind of start back then too, over, over schooner. And that's why it was grown. But it was grown under licensing arrangements because of the, um, regulation we had in the system at that time. Yeah, and we um, we did a pretty good job of marketing it, and then basically we were left not high and dry, but that's probably a, yeah. And we couldn't get any galaxy, and people really wanted it. Well, so I see the same thing with Gardner now. I mean, I think there's a lot of probably traditional um, brewers and molsters, probably not just such in Australia, but around the world that are probably going to want Gardner quality, but we're not going to produce it for them. Westminster's taken over the Western District um, of Victoria and the north of the Divide, uh, Hindmarsh and, and Latrobe's come in um, and uh, Dean probably has the numbers, but there wouldn't be too many like us growing Flinders, I imagine, yet, Dean, they'd be in the, in the minority, I would think. There you go, yeah. So. But with Marisota, there's, a, there's an intuitive understanding by the industry that the industry has to pay extra for Marisota and they know that that's going to the farmer because they know agronomically it's being surpassed every single year, but there's enough demand to keep it growing. Yeah, well, that comes back to the first start where we talk about the economics, you know, that's why you've got to sit down and, and work it out, um, and we're well-placed to do that now. We have the systems and the capability and the data capture to be able to do all those things. So there's a, for me, there's a, an outtake from this about Marisota. It, for me, it says that there's buyer behaviour out there that puts a premium value on a base malt that they find flavourful 
in their beers. Uh, so we've got a precedent there where people are prepared to pay a premium, but there is no activity in the Australian market to take advantage of that precedent. There's no, there's no, from a malting perspective, or a, if it's driven by variety uh, out in the field, there's still nobody taking active steps to capture that premium for what the buyer perceives is a higher quality, subjective thing. Uh, there's just no activity there. I don't really understand it. I, re I really think that's because in Australia we don't associate uh, barley or, or malt with a variety. You know, pale, pale malt is pale malt. That's it as far as we're concerned. Uh, you know, generally, you know, we don't identify... Uh, yeah, well, look, it should happen, but it doesn't. And um, really, in terms of most... Uh, malts these days, uh, the malts, the malts of the barley growers tend to be driven by um, overseas because uh, that's where most of their market is. So uh, what the Australians get is uh, the tail end of what uh, the overseas marketers uh, demand. Um, and you know, that can change uh, the whole barley variety uh, structure. But we don't understand as a general uh, brewing entity, um, special, uh, specialised uh, pale malts. You, know, you understand the caramel malts and the coloured malts, but you don't understand the pale malts. To us, pale malt is pale malt, that's it. Yeah, but now we're, um, in terms of our sales, the Australian ale malt's quite a, quite a large skew for us, and we're seeing a rise in uh, Munich and also Vienna's following on behind. And that, that's been a change in about the last five years, I think. So people are getting more knowledge, there's more demand, definitely it is coming along. And, and ale is a, a very large mover for us. Coming back to Grant's point about um, getting together as, as growers, and I, I think you were looking at me, Grant. <laughs> um, you can do that, and that's great, but then all we're doing is taking the container to a spot somewhere and distributing from there, whereas we do that now. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I can understand where you're coming from, but I think we do do that, and I think um, for the service we offer, if we don't offer a correct margin price, then that opens it up for that to happen. And we can deliver to brewers directly, we can deliver to two brewers as long as they're geographically close. So yeah, yeah always. I always talk about in my office, I say to my staff, the, the next competitor might not be in Australia, but they're only a boat ride away. All right, does anyone have any questions that, they, that we've missed in terms of uh, something you'd like to explore further? One from me for OJ, just um, being in the US again a couple of weeks ago, we're hearing numbers, I think 5,000 acres of hops going into the US this year, 5,000 went in the year before. Is, what's, the, what's, the, what's the field, what's it looking like now out there? Well, my crystal ball is broken, it's currently getting fixed, but um, yeah, <laughs> uh, look, um, 
the information we see through the wider Bath Haas group is um, is that uh, at this rate um, there will there, the market will come back into balance um, in a broad sense. Um, variety specifically, uh, we're talking balance being achieved on some of the you know lead half a dozen hops, Citra Mosaic, um, that sort of thing. <coughs> That said, there are uh, clear examples where some of the some of the longer run um, hops, um, Willamette, Liberty, Mount Hood, things like this, are actually getting more and more expensive, even in the face of 10,000 acres in the last two years, um, as people shift their variety mix on their farms and and don't perceive value in these. So there'll be some that uh, come into balance. There'll be some that become overcorrected and and actually go up in price. So it's going to be um, uh, f- I think we're moving from a um, from a situation where we're in shortage to um, to simply a lot of unpredictable turbulence um, in in the hop industry. So f- the the take out there perhaps is as we like to bang on about is to continue to have those conversations with your hop suppliers. Um, if, you, if you're not growing at 30% and are completely out of control, try and contract for what you are confident to contract against. At least then, if you have variation, you're only trying to top up whatever that figure is, 10% rather than 110% in a short market. Okay, so... Yes, Sam. Sorry, AJ. Just, just saying, yeah, I mean, we've, just, we've been talking the last while about all of this, and you're saying yields down. It's, it's looking a bit average, so... So what guarantee, because we're talking about this, this whole um, the ho- Australian hop industry has actually just gone, yeah, let's do this. The malt industry, maybe not so much. So what guarantee can you guys give us as Australian brewers to say, you know what, we're, we're going to give you 80% because I've heard 40, I've heard whatever, but, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't is there, does it get to a point where you go, fuck it, no one else is allowed, um, anything? It's all the Aussies, they're legends, off you go. Uh, it's a valid question, I think, you know, because so everyone's chasing our hops at the moment. So um, this year, quite frankly, was just an unmitigated disaster in terms of um, the weather event and the overall yields in Australia. It was, this is, um, it, we've got people in the business who, have, uh, who are with AHM and HPA for, you know, 42 consecutive harvests and they've never seen a crop result like this. So this this was literally the worst possible timing, and um, you know, without trying to without trying to exaggerate it, I feel like it's a one in a hundred year event. Um, geez, I hope so because it's uh, it's been a tough one. Um, the the ability for us to we pride ourselves on our ability to ensure supply. If you contract with us, uh, we have our own inbuilt um, safety buffer in what let's say we're going to grow a hundred units. You know, we might only contract up to 85 units of that. That gives us what is our long-run um, um, seasonal variation um, in that safety zone, if you like. Uh, so we pride ourselves on, if you contract with us, it does give you surety of supply. Now, unfortunately, I, I can't stand here and say that we did that this year because we had Galaxy down 35%, Vic Secret down 40%, Enigma down 50%, Ella down 30%, but luckily Ella had a bit of room in its um, contract position, so we filled all our Ella contracts. One little ray of sunshine right there. Uh, otherwise, it was, a, it was a really tough year. Do you then go, OJ, OK, look, we're going to look after our Aussies. 
Um, I know there's money in the market, but there's also pride in the market as well. And uh, do you is there is there any stage where you go, right? No more overseas sales. Um, I don't know. Stuff is contracted, and and you're legally binding to that contract. But is there a point where you go? We got to look after our, sorry to quote Pauline Hanson, but backyard. So you're talking um, about, uh, let's, let's say we're talking about 2017. Is there a point in time with which we say, uh, for an overseas buyer, we will not sell to you overseas in preference of looking after our Australian market? Yeah, yeah. We, d- we do not have any fixed firm rules internally about that. Okay. Um, it, is, it is actually something I take on board as um, my responsibility to make sure I actively work in the Australian market to gauge and better understand Australia's needs. Now, that really puts a, a really fine point on why you need to be talking to your hop suppliers because if we're not feeding in your 30% growth or whatever you're having, um, and you look at me for 130 units when I've basically budgeted for 100 units for you, um, I, I can only feel so responsible for that shortfall. Yeah. Now, my advice is get on the front foot and contract. There are buyers out there with money on the table. It is absolutely my obligation to turn hops back into cash uh, for our business. And, uh, and frankly, um, the ability to look after Australia is compromised by the Australian inability to uh, become uh, less risk averse and to contract, to, to stump up and commit. So, so it comes back down to the same story. Get on your to contract. contract. Get a contract. Come going. and have a conversation. Which, which, which leads further into businesses. So it's getting your forecasting. It's, get, it's just being a better business person and, and, and getting your priorities. And, and in without line any for prejudice everything. at all, I think the, the, the tough thing about this environment is we're all young businesses experiencing really unpredictable growth. Um, you don't, you know, I, I mean, I, I can't speak for you, but were, was the pool on your hop inventory part of your strategy after winning those two medals, or was that just like, Let's go. Uh, no, I think it just validated what we thought was our, was our gut and uh, it sort of forced us to pull the trigger on what was already a five-year Okay, so, but you had to get organised much quicker. I mean, that's, but that's, that's good. So that's, um, in, terms of, in terms of having a firm product strategy, I know, I know from my conversations with brewers um, around the country that that within the first few years, you may not actually have a, a fully formed and crystallised product strategy. So, you know, you, you, your ability to plan your hop inventory is really seriously compromised and, and we, have to, we have to work within that sort of complexity in, in, our, in our domestic market. So, you know, um, do as best as you can, come and have a conversation, lock in what your risk appetite lets you and, um, and keep your fingers crossed so that we don't have a hailstorm in 2017. Yes. Uh, so the question here is, what percentage of Galaxy might be contracted internationally? <coughs> so 2017 Galaxy is already contracted up to 90%. Our, our 10% buffer has been preserved. So by all means have a conversation, uh, but the, the, reality is, the, reality is, uh, the reality is if we hit budget, we've got 10% of our total yield, which, which to be frank is going to be about 75 tonnes. It's, it's a massive crop, 750 tonnes. Um, you know, if we can uh, use... If we come in on par, we use that buffer, uh, our safety margin to look after all the spot buyers and uncontracted people. You know, ideally, a spot market is a very important instrument in the normally functioning market for hops. Um, when we don't have a spot like this year, it is just chaos. OK, so the, the, the percentage of Galaxy that's contracted overseas is about... Off the top of my head, it's about uh, about sixty percent 
as it stands today. That really hits the nail on the head. You know, at the end of the day, if you don't have contracts, you can't sit and bitch and moan to people like OJ because we know that Galaxy is this much. They've got 90% contracted. If you want some, have the conversation. At the end of the day, have the conversation and create those relationships right where we started an hour and a half ago. Create the relationships with the likes of these guys and, you know, you won't be in an awkward position. Unfortunately, the hurdle at this point is going forward that... Um for a small business in a rapid growth environment, um, now to get a Galaxy contract, we've got to be talking 2017 at this point in time, 2018 in this point in time. And you know, that is a whole, whole other order of uncertainty out there for a small business. I mean, that is really tough and I, and I, do, I do appreciate that. It's a bloody awkward chair to sit in sometimes. One of the um, biggest questions um, I kind of have is that I'm watching experiments in the US, for instance, with hydroponically grown hops, um, increasing yield by 10 times. Um, what are you doing in Australia to increase the capacity, if you like, of hop growing? Because you're staring in the face of 30 40% growth statistics in the next few years. Um, this is a major pain point if it's down to, down to weather. I mean, what technology or innovation are you guys doing, or the country is doing, to, to save the planet from running out of hops? So, <laughs> so in my spare time, I've been working on that issue. I, I, I hear the uh, hydroponics and I, I even heard one uh, the other day saying that um, they, were running, um, oh, they were running like beer line-esque glycol in the soil to achieve the minus one in the soil for, uh, for proper uh, dormancy. I mean, uh, sh- sh- this is after dark uh, Radio Brews news. I mean, shit the bed. That is just a bridge too far. You know, that is... <laughs> That is, uh, that, is, that, is not, that is not a legitimate technological advancement. What we haven't been able to do in 60 years of in-house breeding, and uh, this goes for all the breeding programs we have awareness across the world, we have not been able to do the barley uh, quantum steps in yield. We, we've always sat around um, two tonne a hectare up to our biggest currently is just shy of four in a commercial setting, in a bigger acreage commercial setting. And, and, you know, we're on, the, we're on the leading edge of yields uh, for modern varieties as it stands, but we haven't been able to go from two tonne to four tonne to eight tonne. You know, we, we just haven't been able to achieve that. Now, I, I threw the gauntlet down to our plant breeder, Dr Simon Whittick, the other day um, and, uh, and basically said, you know, why aren't you keeping up with the barley guys? And, uh, well, as a percentage we are, but uh, we still haven't had those quantum leaps. So the other issue, the other answer here about catering for the future is um, about uh, capability building and, um, and, and uh, resilience in our business and uh, risk mitigation in, to enable us to supply, uh, you know, to have greater supply surety. So what we're doing there is um, in the last two years we've spent 15 million bucks on our two farm sites. We've actually created a third site uh, in the valley about uh, 10k up the road from our Victorian farm. We've increased uh, processing capacity on the Victorian farm. Uh, we've doubled the processing capacity on the Victorian farm. Uh, in terms of risk mitigation against crop failure like we saw this year, we've, we've put 120 hectares out in, uh, out in the neighbouring valley. Uh, the, uh, the Ross Trevor farm is currently sitting at about 240 hectares. So, so literally, uh, you know, that is a very significant satellite site. Uh, we saw this year the other hop growers in that valley were untouched by the weather event that, that decimated our farm. Uh, 
So uh, a little bit of sort of internal risk management there, uh, capability uh, in terms of processing, land under trellis, um, our variety mixes now, uh, where we want it to be, we've shifted from, every, people have probably heard this in the room a hundred times now, we've shifted from 90% bittering varieties and 10% aroma to 90% aroma, modern aroma and flavour varieties, 10% bittering, only catering for uh, the Australian domestic needs in, uh, in the big boys. Uh, the rest of it is um, is now in in step with what we see as the the overall market trend and um, and our and our most modern modern varieties. So we think we're doing uh, everything we can. The next step for us um, is to uh, ask the board to put their hand in their pocket again and uh, and actually uh, go uh, go full noise for a, a third production facility. Take Ross Trevor out to 350 hectares. Put a whole other uh, you know, uh, green field site out there that is capable of another 350 hectares and uh, try and go past, uh, take the Australian industry past uh, 2,000 tonnes for the first time. Uh, next year, just to give you a sense of scope of what we've tried to achieve, uh, next year in Victoria, I believe our farm at Ross Trevor will produce more hops alone than has ever been produced in the Victorian hop industry. So, you know, we... It was, only f it was only eight years ago we were down to growing 80 hectares uh, and, and we've, uh, you know, we've been going hell for leather trying to reinvigorate this business. So, so boy, I'm always ears open for other options, but um, my head's spinning with how much we're, we're going for it at the moment. So fingers crossed that craft doesn't fall over. <laughs> and by the way, we're saving the planet. Salmon safe. Salmon safe hops, look it up, it's hilarious. Okay, does anyone have any questions? Any more questions? Here's your opportunity. All right, so... Mick, go for it, Mick. Are you going to buy back Gunn's Plains and Scottsdale? You got rid of them to the dairy industry and the dairy industry's falling over in uh, uh, Tasmania, so you may as well buy, buy back the land and um, start uh, replanting those areas. <laughs> uh, look, um... It is something that I think, to be honest, we, we probably would admit to regretting, the sale of both Scottsdale and Guns Plains. But uh, back in those days when we were at the mercy of the global alpha market, we were just getting crunched all the time. I mean, it was, it was literally diversify or die. And, uh, and you know, uh, I, I'm not sure if I understood the economics in the back corner there, but if, um, if, if you're under threat in your Asian markets that much, you know, you should get on board some diversification or you might come under some threat down the track. Now, uh, in terms of Guns Plains, we won't. Um, that's, that's done and dusted. Uh, the infrastructure's all gone. Scottsdale's actually interesting. The sheds are still there. The irrigation's still in the ground. The cows are still mowing the lawn for us, keeping it nice and tidy. Um, but uh, at this stage, um, the conditions that we see in Victoria with the closure of the uh, tobacco industry and... Uh, and the available land uh, in the Victorian um, sense is, is definitely our priority. So Tasmania is also at a, uh, much like a brewery that's hit capacity, Tasmania is basically about to come up to its production capacity and would be another quantum leap forward there which requires a lot of cash. Um, the land availability around Bushy Park is quite tight as well. So that's, that's, almost, um, that's almost set in its, in its long run configuration now. So the opportunity for us is in, uh, in the high country here in Victoria. 
I just wanted to pick up on what uh, Grant said earlier again, and this probably involves Andrew. Just with what we do at Cryomalt, every year we're, or every month, we're looking at where malt sales are going, what's going up, what's going down. But we're always forecasting forward pretty much 20, 30% increase. What, in terms of you providing forecasts to people like us and probably the other person who I mentioned in here, but <laughs> do you do more of that? Is there more you can do with your suppliers in terms of letting them know where you're going? Because some guys just pop and suddenly they're just taking a variety we never knew and we've got to find it and we run like hell and we usually get it done, but it would be better if we could forecast better. We're going through, just personally, we're going through a pretty structural change at the moment in that we've first released our package, whereas everything before just went to our bar or kegs. Um, that's proving difficult, so a forecast I gave you at the moment um, you know, might, might change rapidly, but principally, yes, I'll forecast out you know, two, potentially one to two years and, and give you our volume forecasts um, to, to facilitate that relationship and help you guys place what we do. But... We're at such an ins insignificant end of the scale. I'm just, are you, it would really require all brewers to do that for you to really form a meaningful. Yeah, um, we, we always ask for forecasts, but they're, they're, they're hard to get. These guys are, you guys are really busy doing what you're doing, mm. and getting forecasts sometimes is not the easiest thing in the world. You've got to have forecasts. <laughs> there you go. You've got to have forecasts. I mean, really. I mean, without really knowing, I mean, not having a crack, but uh, you, you talk to a lot of smaller brewers in this country and they don't really know what they're doing next week or next month. You know, you, you can't sit and have a real conversation with a supplier of anything if you don't have a business plan, you don't have a forecast, you don't, you don't have the numbers because you just pull the numbers out of your ass. I mean, you, you've actually got to have that plan. You've got to have those numbers. You've, you, you've just got to have a proper business plan that then flows through, you know, into proper volumes. From volumes, you're going to get a very, very clear understanding of how many bottles, how much glass, how many ground seals, how much molten hops, you know, and broken down by, uh, you, you know, your, your different brands. I mean, without having that business plan, without actually knowing your actual numbers, you're flying blind and there's no way. If I was OJ and Dave and the Barrett's guys, I'd be sitting there going, well, mate, 12 months ago I asked you for these numbers and you didn't give them to me, so I'll try my very, very best. But I know that 90% of Galaxy is actually already contracted. I'll do my best. I'll ring Brad. I'll ring someone in the US. I'll ring someone and go, look, is it all right if we take back that little bit that you, know, you might have had up your sleeve? But... If you don't have those numbers and you don't have those conversations going right back to the beginning of the conversation, if you don't have those relationships with your suppliers, the people that are actually supplying the bits and pieces that you need to put your beer together to get it out into the, you know, out into the market, then you know, I, I don't have any sympathy for you and I don't think these guys would have a whole lot of sympathy for you either. How far do you like to work in advance? Like, how far do you need to know numbers, David? Well, we work on one year, so when we secure each year, we negotiate pricing that's for one year. That's how we like to work. But we're always looking and adding on 30%, because we see forecasts, and sometimes we look at them, and we have to take a judgment call and say, I think they're going to do better than that. And the other risk on the other side for us, I think less so than OJ, is we have these lovely little things called weevils. So if we overdo it, we get hammered. So we've got to be trying to balance those two things. You want fresh malt. Yeah. How, how long hops yeah. can be stored for? 
ages. Oh, we put a we put a three year shelf life on ours. Sorry, when sorry, what was that? stable. Luxury. <laughs> three years, did you say, OJ? And uh, for all those interested, we're taking contracts out to 2021 currently. Cheers. <laughs> all right. Any questions? Again, now's your chance. All right. So basic, yeah, David, no. What's one? Oh, just for Andrew, sorry. To yes. What's, what's the worst barley growing year you've ever had? Because we, we heard about OJ's Anis Horribilis. What's... Look, the last two years have been tough. Uh, this last year in, in particular, pretty similar, I'd say, the weather event. We're hoping it's a one in a hundred, but who knows in this modern age uh, that we live in. So, yeah, look, I'd say um, probably actually 98 was probably the worst, to be honest, going right back, um, when we had a pretty severe frost, um, wiped out pretty much the whole crop. Um, we got nothing much out of it at all. So. That's probably the worst year, but you know we've certainly over the last decade we've experienced some of the worst growing seasonal conditions ever. But along the same path line, we've had new varieties coming on board now that are giving us more security. Um, and I was listening to the guy on the end there. <laughs> you know, no business plan can be done on guesswork. So you know, as a contrast to Andrew down in the Wimmera, Northern New South Wales, Southern Queensland had the best barley crop last year in 15 years. So that's the country we live in. And that's what's so different about the production environment, what we've got to remember in Europe and North America. Nearly, not so much Canada, but all of the US barley crop is irrigated pretty well. So you go out and contract the farmer, you're going to get a crop. The only thing that's going to kill you is, is too wet a harvest or a frost. Europe, they're producing 60 million tonnes of barley every year, more than enough to choose from. So it's Australia where we are in this challenging production environment when it comes to barley and even last year when it comes to hops. So we, we are, we're different. We're a different continent. We're in a different place. Just on the market too, that um, European Union market is one you're going to have to watch pretty closely. More politically driven, uh, more politically motivated in that country and that's certainly talking to my counterpart in Germany early last year. Uh, that they've got issues there in, in political terms, in terms of their production and things that they can and can't do anymore. So you get, just keep watching that space because I, I think it's a, it's a danger if you're thinking about long-term reliability, even though they grow 60 million tonne. Um, the potential for them to grow is reduced massively based on their government policy. So believe that, that you know, not only have they, like we have out here, weather conditions, they've actually got political issues that will cause concern, I think, in that market in not too distant a future, if not already. All right, so um, if uh, no one has any questions, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna ask, going to ask the panellists just to do a sum up of what they think is both the opportunity and the challenge. You don't have to go first, Brad. Um, both the opportunity and the challenge um, for the industry as a whole. Um, in, in the coming kind of growth period. Andrew? Um, well, look, in summary, I think, well, certainly today's been another eye-opener for me, an ear-opener. Uh, there are opportunities there, regardless of how big or small. There'll be uh, opportunities coming out of this and obviously continuing the relationship through Barrett's with David and, and those in the room that, um, you know, want to try and work together. And I think we talked about it earlier that... You know, there, there are some opportunities there and things start small, just like we did with the Bendigo Bank. And I was listening intently 
um, just as a, an adjunct here, the Bendigo Bank, when we kicked that away, the, the reason Bendigo looked at us as a small setup was that they wanted to have smaller investors. They wanted to go and have the, absolutely the opposite plan to the big banks where they had one person with $100 million. They wanted 100 people with $100 million because they're less likely to have risk in their business. So don't worry about being small. There are opportunities and uh, I think that our industry from this, you know, I'll go back and talk to them, I'll talk to the breeders and we'll see what opportunities lie and we'll obviously be working through Barrett's and Ralph and, and Dean um, in particular because they're close, they're that close to the industry, they are the mould industry essentially from the broad acre sense. So I think that there's um, some take home messages there. And, and uh, finishing up, I suppose this morning at 7.30 I had a spray nozzle in my hand, I'm hoping at 7.30 tonight I've got a nice craft beer in my hand. Thank you for the invitation to be here. <laughs> Probably not. I think for me, um, very briefly, it's about innovation. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that there's a huge opportunity there for innovation um, and grabbing some of that import market, the way I see it as the import market. And uh, that, you know, the other key takeaway from a grower's point of view is that the industry ain't going anywhere. It's only going up. And that's what I see too. I see this as the beginning in another 10 years, you'll be probably three times or four times the size you are now. Um, so there's quantum growth and that's obviously going to take market share away, but the world's going to grow too, so we'll all grow together and, and uh, here's who knows where we're going to go. Yeah, I, look, I, I, I realise we, we pay probably a 100% premium on, on uh, local Palemont by, by the varieties that we import. And uh, we've just discovered a, a small maltings company in New Zealand that works with, I think, four or five farms um, that are producing some, more than 20 different um, specialty malts and pale malts uh, for craft brewers. So we're going to give them a try, but it would seem like... Uh, and perhaps next year we could invite Powell's Malting, who are in Brayside, a, a small maltings company. But it seems like there definitely would be an opportunity for... a. This, a, a smaller maltings company to, to fit the scale of the kind of things that we, we do. Uh, yeah, look, thanks, David, for putting the, uh, uh, the panel together and, and getting everyone here. I think there's always plenty of opportunities to, and, and those only begin with, with conversations like, like this. So, um, yep, innovation, I think, is a, a key thing as the, the market's certainly changing dramatically and will continue to, so we'll uh, meet those challenges head on. Yeah, the opportunity is uh, clear from, uh, from the hop perspective in, in um, looking at the way craft beer is marching forward and, uh, you know, frankly, it's going to be a great time um, to be working in the supply side of the industry and uh, being part of, instead of running your own brewery, only enjoying four or five beers that are successful, maybe uh, I get the opportunity here in the next few years to enjoy thousands of beers that are successful in the Australian market. Good segue, Sam. So, I mean, the big thing for me is obviously uh, the contract piece. You can't sit and bitch and moan about it. If you don't have a plan, you don't have all those bits and pieces, then, you know, get it together. But I think for me, the big outtake, you know, it's about actually as a small brewer, you know, wanting, wanting, wanting to actually continue to grow, having the capability, having the ability to grow. And it all boils down to me, you know, as we continue to grow, we started, God, when I was started, it was 0.2% of the market. Now we're up to five or six or seven, whatever it is. 
but it's about the industry actually having a maturity and understanding to actually continue that growth because we can't keep sitting having these discussions because we actually need to mature as an industry and I think for me that's the big outtake. It's understanding that yeah we have grown from something very small to something very large and if we want to keep growing we actually need to be mature about it. Whether it's talking to suppliers, whether it's talking to stainless steel manufacturers, whether it's talking to the gamut across the industry, it's about doing it maturely and understanding that we've actually you know, we've actually built a really cool platform here in this country and, you know, we're really, just the, we're really just at the beginning and to continue to grow, we actually need to be very mature and keep having these conversations and actually keep the dialogue open. I think that's, to me, the outtake and thanks, Dave, for putting it all together and I, you know, hope we keep having the conversation. Absolutely. So, um, I'd like... David. David, do you have anything? Or I'll, I'll, just I'll just say thank you, David. Um, for, for putting this on uh, and, uh, uh, and for bringing it together for the second year. I think it's, a, it's still it's an ongoing conversation. Yes, look, I'd just like to thank the panel for giving their time. Catherine, thank you for organising this. And thanks for everyone for coming. And just, it's great to see these discussions. And I think it's not going to stop when this finishes right now. It's going to carry on. And that's the important thing. We sowed some seeds. You like that one, Andrew? I do. Good work. And now uh, well, they're going to grow. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for Great. coming. Thanks, David. Thanks to all our panellists for coming along. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being so generous. And uh, see you later. Oh, by the way, thanks to Australian Brews News as well for putting this on a podcast. Cheers. Cheers.